Hi there, and welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. I'm your host, Katie Rulon, and in conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions, and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In today's episode, we're joined by Taniva Monroe. Taniva is a powerful advocate for social justice from Boston in the US. And she does so by sharing her own lived experiences of indebtedness, becoming homeless and navigating a complex and often hostile social service system. I met Taniva a few months ago at a conference in the US on disrupting poverty, organized by Boston-based organization Empath. Some of you may remember that we spoke about their unique mobility mentoring program with Beth Babcock, their CEO at the time. It's episode 23, if you haven't yet listened to it. At the conference in Boston, Tuniva and I were part of a panel on shifting poverty narratives. She stole the show. Her messages, grounded in her own experiences, really hit home, for me and for others. And so it's an honor to have Tuniva with us for this episode. In our conversation, we talk about her journey and what marked turning points for her. She describes her experiences with the social service system, also referred to as human services. And she has some powerful messages for everyone who is listening. So make sure you listen until the very end. Taniva, thank you very much for joining the podcast. It's really nice to have you with us. Now, the first thing I want to ask you is you are a very active and avid advocate for social justice. And if I'm correct, much of that is grounded in your own lived experience. So to get the conversation going, would you be able to share some of your journey with us, with the listeners, and explain maybe why you've become such a powerful activist? Absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, just thank you, Katie, so much for inviting me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you to answer your question about how I got to to have such a powerful voice and advocate for lived experiences. It just essentially started with my experiences being burnt out, essentially. There was no end or just feeling kind of hopeless, but I really wanted to hold on to that there was hope, that there was another answer. And so out of that really came a lot of my advocacy work. It was endlessly working with other nonprofit organizations that I just felt like really wasn't helping me adequately as much as the public might talk about how there's so much help for the impoverished or um, someone facing financial hardship. There's so much hoops to jump through that it feels like there really isn't much help. It just feels like almost like a circus sometimes. And it's very frustrating. Out of that pain, out of that came my voice. And so that's why I do the work that I do. I also credit it a lot to spaces or organizations that make space for me to have a voice. Um, One being empath, as you know, going into that space, I really, that's where I started to truly believe that my voice mattered. Thank you for sharing that. Really good to hear that you've been helped by some of these organizations to find your voice and to use it now so powerfully. Would you be able to to give us some insight into some of the challenges that you faced at that time when you felt maybe 
a sense of hopelessness or stuck in your life. What were some of the issues you were facing and how were they coming together to hit such a crisis point? Yeah, I mean, I had just graduated from undergrad. Around the time we were experiencing an economic downturn. So this is like, what, 2009, 2010. And so job security was a real issue. Folks weren't finding jobs, particularly myself, wasn't finding jobs. Um, and at the time I became pregnant and it was, a, it was another hardship at the time. It was hard to make appointments or go to interviews and things of that sort. I mean, it didn't stop me from interviewing, but there just wasn't a lot of opportunities out there. Fast forward, I ended up in shelter housing or what one might call emergency housing assistance. Being in the shelter was very hard, very hard to find housing after shelter as well. Finding a housing worker that wasn't overworked, that wasn't bombarded with a large caseload was hard. So a lot of things really fell on me to do. I recall I was thinking about looking for apartments and what that, what that meant for me at that time. And sometimes it meant going to different housing authorities that were like almost an hour away. So I would be driving for hours looking for housing. And it was really, really hard. I remember applying for housing back in 2010, 2011. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go apply for housing and they'll show me some things. Little did I know I was just filling out paperwork to be put on a wait list, not even on the list. And to be honest, to date, my name is likely still on that list and have, you know, I have not been called. That's a little snippet. That sounds like a massive part of your life. And if that's not secure, then that sort of takes over a lot of the energy and headspace you might have and need for other things. So what was a turning point? Was there a particular worker that you found who you felt did have the capacity or the time to focus on you and your daughter? Was it a certain organization that came around the corner and helped you out? Or was it for you to find a glimmer of hope and, and energy to move forward or just luck? What do you think? I believe it was a couple of different things in terms of my turning point. What comes to mind is I remember working at a Fortune 500 company in the financial industry, and I, and I prefaced that just to kind of give context and put everything together, essentially really to tell the public, like, hey, it could be anybody that these things happen to. But I was there, and I, was, I had already faced eviction and was essentially homeless. And so I was going to the many different nonprofit organizations, again, that offered emergency assistance, and I was not able to get it. One organization was, was able to help me at the time. This was Family Aid Boston. But even in that, it was really, really hard because I remember working with one of my workers there and I was on the verge of, actually I lost my voucher. A voucher essentially is housing support. It's a way to prove that you're not rent burdened when you're looking for an apartment. It allows you to be more, look like your tenancy is looked, on, looked at more favorably. And so I lost 
my voucher and I was looking for support from my caseworker to essentially appeal the decision. And my, my worker just felt like, well, they already made this decision. What's the point? But thank God for other organizations, one in particular, which is family movement. I heard about this organization, very small, not really well known. Um, someone recommended me to them. And the CEO, LaKenya, ended up following up with me, asked me for my story, and she just really jumped in and met me where I was at, meaning she went to bat for me to the larger organizations that essentially distribute these vouchers. So that would be the Department of Housing and Community Development. They were retracting my voucher and she went to the top executives and she said, this can't happen. This woman is facing you know, homelessness. She is you know, gainfully employed and she just made the case for me. And I kept my voucher. Essentially what my caseworker said would be impossible, she made possible. And from then on, I just ran with this organization, Family Movement. That was my turning point because I remember before I was housed where I am now, you know, there was so many things that was needed in terms of moving transportation, first and last security in terms of to secure your unit. And all of these things, um, Family Movement was really able to jump in and help with. And I believe that in working with that organization, that was my turning point, because at that point, I really felt seen. And what I mean by that is I didn't feel like somebody was coming in to cheer me on from the side. I felt like somebody got in the ring and took a battle for me. Because I was always going up against, uh, you know, these different organizations and kind of proving my, you know, my insecurity around housing. And I just felt like, why, why do I need to prove this? So that, that's really what started the turning point for me, essentially. It sounds like such a difficult landscape to navigate all these different organizations that get involved and I imagine they all work in different ways and have different ways of jumping in or standing by the sides. So I'm really glad to hear that there was this one organization and particularly this one person within the organization that then helped you out or helped with you. And it sparked a turning point. Now, thinking about that period of insecurity and being evicted, the situation you were in, and it's interesting to hear what your employment situation was at the time as well, that you were gainfully employed, as you said, and you were facing this situation. What is your experience when it comes to attitudes that people have towards people facing this type of insecurity or housing, stress, homelessness, the prejudice or, or any stereotyping that goes on? <laughs> There's a lot that goes on with that. Again, just to kind of go back to the organization that kind of turned, was like a turning events for me. The head of that organization, the founder, had lived experiences. And so it was really easy to be able to talk about these stereotypes and prejudices with her, but also she was able to point them out herself. Because a lot of times when something is happening to you, you don't even realize that it's happening it takes another lens or somebody from the outside to see um, what's going on to you. I mean, I think I kind of just 
might have gave you an example with the caseworker where she thoroughly overlooked the ability to overturn a decision or the fact that my livelihood, my family's livelihood depended on appealing that decision. Like that was kind of the only way that I was holding on to the ability to be rehoused. Otherwise, I would have been further into a dark hole of of a lot of people who are not able to secure housing. But something that I wanted to talk about was I, I remember being in one of my apartments and I'd put in a maintenance request to have like my central air looked at because it was the beginning of June. It was really starting to warm up pretty early. And so we were on the sixth floor and as you know, heat rises. And so I was looking to have it looked at. And so naturally I called maintenance to have them review it. And the maintenance person came in to look at the thermostat or control panel. And I remember them saying something along the lines of, um, you people always want something or you people always want more. I don't quite remember all of his words, but I remember how it made me feel. It, it made me think about, okay, he must be talking about me as a voucher holder, one who is low income. I'm demanding things that are beyond my basic needs, question mark, because really I'm not asking for something that's beyond my basic needs. And it's important to bear in mind the housing that I I was in at the time was called LITC, which is low income tax credit housing, which is essentially housing specific, housing development specifically made for those with housing vouchers because those developments actually receive tax credits from the government. So they are funded to do the job to service low-income families. And yet I was up against this person or felt like I was up against this person with this mindset. Like, I I just, it didn't feel good, obviously. Another situation was probably prior, yeah, prior to that one, when my daughter was much younger, she might've been like a, a couple months old. And this is before I went into actual shelter. I was pretty much like doubling up, tripling up in a rooming situation in Dorchester with two other women. Dorchester is another city in, in Boston. I'd requested housing assistance or housing assistance or what's referred to EHA, emergency housing assistance. And when the evaluation team came in to evaluate my living conditions, I didn't qualify. I didn't qualify or was eligible for the EHA benefits because I didn't meet the criteria. At the time, I wasn't fleeing domestic violence. At the time, I didn't have any no-fault fire or natural disaster issues. I didn't have a no-fault eviction at the time. But I believed I, I was facing a housing crisis. And I was living in a room with my daughter, who was a baby at the time again. And our things were basically everywhere. It was almost like a living space and a storage unit. So space was very tight. Tensions were likely very high with rooming with others. And I did have concern around her safety, around just other people that these other roommates were bringing in at the time. 
I was just doing my best to bear with it in the meantime. And not too long after that, I did experience domestic violence. And then I became eligible for EHA benefits. I'm really sorry to hear about that experience. And my immediate reaction is that's definitely not how a system should work. Do you think that is partly because of attitudes towards people living in financial insecurity or low income? Or is there also a general lack of capacity, do you think, to be able to help everybody in need? I believe it's both. I believe it's the very flawed and inaccurate understanding of families and individuals with lived experiences and also the capacity, the oversaturated capacity of those in the human service industry and and their ability to do what the industry was built to do, which is to serve, which is to supply a safety net, essentially allow for folks who are in harm's way or facing crisis to essentially come in to a space of safety, security. Because that is true, a lot of things, so many things are overlooked. I'm I'm just thinking about the first time I, I went to Uh, kind of like in an event with the same organization that really was like a turning point for me, family movement. And I remember one of the family members came up to talk about just her experience. And she was just like, I just want to let you know, if this ever is you, you're really going to see how much help you really don't get, how much support really isn't there. As devastating and as hurtful as her comments sounded, it resounded with me because it just, it was true. It was absolutely true. And so I I believe that there's a capacity issue. Unfortunately, caseworkers and different representatives are thoroughly overworked, absolutely overworked and not adequately equipped to really support the populations and the the nuances of of populations, whether who's dealing with, you know, domestic violence or substance abuse or mental health. A lot of folks aren't as versed or like networked enough in order to refer to another agency that would probably be able to support that family. Yeah. Now you mentioned a few organizations have helped you a lot. One that sparked your turning point but another one is empath you mentioned them already and they've been on the podcast before you are in empaths i think mass sleep program can you say a little bit about what that program is how you got involved and how you are involved now yeah so it was a bit of a hard transition for me at the time because i was coming from another I guess, administering agencies. And so that's what they call them. There's administering agencies that administer support systems or that pilot program, which is mass sleep to clients like myself. And so I was working with another organization and that didn't work out. So they wanted to put me with empath. And at the time I really was you know, very vulnerable. That's one thing with um, folks with lived experiences you know, because you're experiencing so much stress, so much trauma, you're in survival mode much longer than you need to, 
And so a lot of the times your judgment or just your ability to focus on one thing is, is, is skewed. So I wasn't too sure, but actually it was someone from the nonprofit um, family movement that really encouraged me to work with Empath that I decided to take a chance with them. And I'm so glad I did because that's really my, where my journey of story sharing really started. And so currently I'm in their flagship program, the Career Family Opportunity CFO program. My experience has been really great because I really have felt supported by different mentors and specialists. I was paired initially with Mobility Mentoring Center where there's multiple different kinds of mentors, whether for financial coaching or career advancing. There was just different coaches for different things. And so um, I kind of got familiar with coaches from, from there. And then with career family opportunity, I am paired with one coach, but I still can work with other coaches on different things. Like I work with a career specialist coach and a financial specialist coach as well for different goals. That really system of approach has been very helpful. It's a way of supporting someone by way of accountability, I feel like, or by way of goal setting. So you have these goals that you work with your mentor on, and you're really trying to figure out essentially a smart goal. It's time sensitive, it's measurable, it's realistic. In doing that, it really allowed for me to see what I was doing in front of me because a lot of times working or operating in survivor mode, you're really not even paying attention to what's really going on. You're, you're on autopilot. So in, in doing that for so long, you like exhaust your system. And so you really do need a support to come in from the outside to really to support you essentially and to kind of be in your blind spots and see what's really going on. And that was really helpful when I started working with another mentor in the beginning. She was the one through conversations with her and just hearing what I had to say in regards to all of my experience. She was just like, you would be a really great advocate. You know, you'd be really good at legislative meetings. And I just thought, these people don't want to hear what I have to say. They really don't. Otherwise, they would do something about it. But um, I guess that just really encompasses my experience with empath and just really their ability to listen when I meet with them, different coaches, for them to really hear what I'm really trying to do, what I'm really trying to focus on as as it pertains to my personal life experience and what works for my family, that has been very helpful. It struck me hearing about Empath's approach when we met in October in Boston and before that as well, is that this is something quite particular to how they do mentoring or, or coaching in that they really listen to the people they work with and to their needs and together try to set these goals and think about what might be most useful to help someone forwards. And of course, there's a lot of success stories and you're one of them. But do you think in thinking about your experience that that approach helps for everyone? Is it suitable for everybody who's in need of help? Or do you think you are also at a time and place 
in your life when you were referred to empath that it was the right time and place for you to be able to receive that support and work with it? Yes, I do think it was good timing for me because I had kind of been through the system for some time. But I still think that I would recommend anyone who, even if they were just getting into shelter, to be paired up with someone at Empath would be perfect versus going through different organizations or different programs that where the relationship feels or can feel very transactional. There's really an emphasis, I feel like, or at least a component about relationship building. I I think someone even just facing crisis, I would still recommend them to work with them. What comes to mind is I had been working with Empath for some time before I really realized that I was the person in the driver's seat. Like, it took me some time. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I would recommend someone to do that because it will take some time before you really see yourself. And by that time, whatever empath, mentor that you're working with, they will already be on board to embrace you in that light. It's a really nice visual to see you in the driver's seat and sort of drive through your own life and on the path that you want that you want to take at the same time I can't help wondering that you are in driver's seat we all are in terms of our own lives of course but we are also inevitably constrained by the systems that we live in and you we were talking quite a bit about the housing system and, and the housing insecurity that you faced And so how do you see that balance between taking control of your own life, realizing that your decisions are your own and you can really direct your life in a certain direction, but also the constraints to that because of the opportunities that are or aren't there? If I'm understanding your question correctly, it's it's basically how do I navigate these systems as, as nuanced and as flawed as they are Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and do they undermine your feeling of being in control of your life because of the inequities and the the many gaps that exist in the services or support that is available absolutely unfortunately i for whatever sort of gaze is on the provider side of the relationship doesn't allow for providers to see clients as people, as they could be a family member, they could be your neighbor. Because we don't look at it like that, I don't know, it's almost like some providers feel like they're doing me a favor or maybe I'm taking out of their pocket. And so it almost becomes like I'm trying to prove my need for support where it really shouldn't be that. If a friend comes to you for, I don't know, whatever it is that they're lacking, you genuinely trust that they need the help. And there's enough different criteria or or things that are on paper that lets you know that this person needs help right? They're coming into this organization. They already received means-tested benefits. And so that already qualifies them. If they receive a means-tested benefit, that means they're below the poverty level. They're way below. 
So there should be no like real scrutiny. They, you know, you already bear the burden of shame and guilt and those feelings of like, how did I get here anyway? How did this happen to me? So to have that added stress of scrutiny and harsh judgment is just so unnecessary. Um, in terms of how do I deal with it? I mean, to be honest, it's a lot of prayer. It's a lot of prayer for me because I'm going to be honest and say it wasn't always like that because in the beginning, I wasted a lot of time with just too many choice words with people that just wasted my time and wasted my energy because there's so many inequities you know, it's a layered onion. And so you have to pick and choose your battles, pick and choose where you're going to put your energy because you're in a fight for a long haul. There's a lot of battles. There's a lot of things that need to be or will be overcome, but it, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen right then and there. I'm even thinking about a recent experience where I was going through requesting adequate support. They have something called like fuel assistance. So during the colder months, expenses are going to be higher as it relates to electricity and gas and things of that sort. And so in order to have added protections, you would have to qualify again. And so you have to have a letter from your doctor. Did that. But I listened to all the criteria and everything, all the essential for me, hoops that I have to jump through. I did that. And they came back and said, you know, your request was denied because the letter from the doctor didn't have the word serious in it. And I was just like, are you kidding me? I'm not even thinking about me at this point. I'm thinking about the person who is worse off from me, the cancer patient, the person dealing with whatever terminal illness or recent news or death in the family, and you're telling me a word serious, you deny them, and then their benefits get shut off tomorrow, they have a young child in the home, and things just spiral quickly. You did all of that because there wasn't a word. In a, it just, it's mind boggling, and it's like, we have to do better. We, we need to do better. Please get yourself in a position to, to look at it in a perspective of what if it was you needing help? What if it was your friend needing help? What if it was your family needing help? Would you really have them jump through all of these hoops, especially after they already did all the things that you requested or at least 90% of the things? You can make an exception. You have the ability to do that and you should. Yeah, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Though That's a really powerful and frustrating example, which is why it's so powerful hearing that, thinking, how is that possible? Just one word that then means you're not eligible or deemed ineligible, which is, which is really incredible. One more thing. I'm sorry, Katie. The thing is that, I didn't have the word serious and it was with the electricity company. I also was requesting support from the gas company and the gas company, it happened just like that. It, they put the protections on the account and I was good to go. It just was like, okay, so how come for one company, they're like, yeah, this is fine. You know, we don't want to infringe upon your, your privacy 
for another organization, it was just like, nope, we can't do this, that sort of a thing. I think this is another example of the inequities that I'm trying to, that, that I'm not trying to talk, but I am talking about. Absolutely. And it strikes me as well, hearing you talk about the different agencies, organizations, services that you are engaging with, that you have to engage with, what a complex web it is that you have to find your way around and you need to know what's there then you need to know who to speak to you need to know what words you use and then the words you have to use are different for different organizations that's enough to drive anybody insane but then as you just explained you're already in a situation of great stress and insecurity and that makes it even harder to to do that so it feels like people are pushed into such a corner that is incredibly hard to get out of unless you have support maybe provided through organizations like Empath or somebody who really points you in the right direction and helps you navigate those those different services. Absolutely. So if we're thinking about change in the future for you personally, but also in terms of some of these systems, what do you think are some of the priorities? If there are people who draw up these policies or implementing them, listening to this podcast, what would you say to them in terms of what they should do first? So I would say a couple of things. One is to try looking at individuals with lived experiences as answers to the problem versus the problem. I would first say that, and that kind of goes along the um, lines of treating people as the experts of their lives because they are, they know what's going on. If you listen and listen well, listen long enough to really understand what's going on, you get a better scope of of what's really going on instead of coming in with your preconceived notions or things of that sort. Another thing I would say is go out of your way to ensure that people with lived experiences are seen, that they're heard, and to the best of your ability, that they're understood. Like go out of your way to do that because a lot of the times misconceptions or misunderstandings can really screw things up really quickly, really easily, not really understanding what, what an actual problem is. You're really just treating a symptom or you're, you know, you're not really treating the root cause or you're just not providing adequate support when you are really doing your best to make sure that someone is seen, someone is heard and that to the best of your ability, you understand what they're, what they're saying is really good. And I'd also add, be willing to say when you don't know something or when you don't understand or when you need to ask for help. And I think that goes along the lines of just be humble, be humble and know that you're not the expert of all things lived. And so you will experience a point where you need to ask a question and leave room for that because that will undoubtedly happen. Like because poverty is complex, there's no way that you're going to know all the answers. I even, you know, hold that true for myself. I'm, I'm the expert of my life, but there's a lot of other lived experiences that I really have to sit back and say, hey, this is the first time I'm listening to their story. And I need to listen in and I need to listen well. I also wanted to just mention how helpful having access to opportunity 
particularly through Empath and other organizations, has truly supported me, has truly just kind of accelerated me. That was a main contributor to me overcoming my student loan debt was through the access and opportunities that I received with them. Thanks so much. Some really powerful and also practical messages in terms of how people can step out or need to step out of their ivory tower really and that includes people like myself who like to sit on the outside look in and then have very strong opinions about what should or shouldn't happen so to hear you say that we should listen more and be humble is is a really good reminder that we should all take to heart we've almost come towards the end of our time together I want to make sure that you've been able to share everything that you've wanted to share of course, we could keep this conversation going for a lot longer. There's a lot more that you can say. I know that. But is there anything that you want to share with our listeners before we close the conversation? I would leave listeners and, and I would more so speak to the listeners who are out there with lived experiences. And I just want to encourage them that their voice matters that they should keep fighting for their human rights and for the justice of the, themselves and their families, that there is hope out there. And a lot of the times, the hope that we're looking for lives within us. We have to continue to go forward for ourselves and also the legacy that we're leaving behind us as well. Somebody else is watching, even if it isn't akin to you, like a family member, there's a close community member or neighbor who is looking at you for hope. If you're not your own inspiration, look at the folks who are drawing from you for inspiration. Like if she can do it or if he can do it, I can do. And representation really goes a long way. Being able to re represent success, being able to represent being a diamond in the rough or the black sheep really just overcoming or being the underdog who is a champion. We need more of those. Thank you, Taniva. I am personally very, very happy that you were with us on the podcast. And I hope that for others, hearing your experiences will, will help them find their voice or the spark of hope within them, but also for others to make sure that we listen much, much more to people with lived experience and take their expertise on board when it comes to designing, implementing all these different services and systems. So they really become better and actually serve the people well who need them. Thank you, Katie. I'm very humbled by your invitation. Humbled and honored. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it with your friends and colleagues and spread the word about our podcast. Leave us a review or follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We hope you'll join us again next time.